Hello, Speech Guy listener. This is Mike. You're looking at episode number 19 of our series, episode two of Speeches Before They Died. This episode features a speech or interview by or from Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that she gave to Time Life magazine just a few weeks before she passed. She uh, took her own life, sadly, in August 1962. Uh, We have two special guests for this episode, Anne-Marie Williams and Claire Schultz, the sister-in-law and lovely spouse of Matt, respectively. Um, We hope that you enjoy it. We enjoyed swapping some ideas and talking about it. So, without further ado... Here's the show. When you see the road from every direction, it will give you eyes, give you hope, it'll give you perspective. I've been back and forth, and yeah, I had my crashes. Now I've seen the road, it goes in. Okay, is everyone acting natural? Not just pretend we're just bleeding right into this conversation. Like Landon hasn't even met Anne Marie yet. Anne Marie, I don't think we've met. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Where do you live? What do you do? Uh, live in New Berlin, about 20 minutes from Ross. You're a pretzel. West of Springfield. How did you know this? I know that. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah, Nobody knows the pretzels. Absolutely. It's like Landon. Where the are the bunnies from? Um, oh, bunnies on. are Nokomis. Nah, you're wrong. That's okay. It's Fisher. <laughs> Fisher what about the corn Fisher. jerkers? Uh, Hoopston. That's, I was gonna, that's an easy one. Anyhow, Landon, that's where I live. I live in New Berlin. I All stay right. at home with with small children, and I'm a freelance writer and an ICU nurse, retired. Already <laughs> retired. Wow. Already retired. Look at you. I actually was the beneficiary of some of Anne-Marie's professional wisdom the other day on Catholic Match. <laughs> one does what one can. It was uh, it was something about being realistic in dating, things, things of that sort. So always, always things useful to hear. And Landon, what, what are you doing? What do you do? I'm in Chicago yes. and work in the agriculture and technology space where those two things cross. That's where I live. Which is why I might call you the most powerful man in Illinois. Uh, that's, I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's hear a little bit from Claire here for her, Claire, to introduce herself. What's going on there? Hey, well, I'm married to Matt. Uh, this is my first time on the show, so that's fun. Um, but you've been a fan for years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest fan. Um I currently am at home with our son. He's three months old, shortly to be returning to my job in the emergency department. So things are busy right now, but in the best kind of way. Claire, it strikes me that we ought to have introduced our, each other. Like, I should have introduced you ah, yeah, and said something ridiculous. Sense. Why don't and you try that again? Because we can always edit things out. You can make it a brief, like, <laughs> 11 seconds. 11 seconds. I don't know. Maybe we should not. I feel like I don't have anything super funny to say. I would need. I would need a Here, moment let to me, like Let me let me like it. show you how to do it. I'll introduce Ross okay. as if he's my okay. brother, mm-hmm. standing at five feet, three <laughs> inches tall, a very sturdy, 
180 pounds. He stayed the same weight for the past 18 years, coming from the former geographical center of the Illinois state. Disputed. Ross. Ross Johnson. <laughs> Ross G. Johnson. Disputed center of the state. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Very well. Very well here. Um, we got Last Talk of the Lonely Girl is the title of the speech slash interview given by Marilyn Monroe in uh, late summer 1962 here. Um, as described earlier and announced and spoken about and exchanged with. We have two of the finer halves of humanity, Anne-Marie and uh, her sister Claire, um, joining us because, of course, you know, what do you guys know about glamour and beauty and women? Well, I like to say we do know a few things, but <laughs> there's certainly a lot that could be contributed by the better half of humanity, as I said. So that's why they're joining us. Um, there are two excerpts that we're going to jog through this evening. It's a really interesting interview. I encourage you to check out the whole thing. Um, but we're just going to focus on two of those bits there. Now, since Marilyn was a woman, and I am not, I thought it'd be fun to hear Marilyn's words from the voice of a woman. So with that... I thought for sure you were going to ask me. I thought for sure you were going to ask me. <laughs> Claire, um, I'll ask you to go ahead and read the first excerpt for us. We'll go from there. I know some of our fans were just overwhelmed and enthusiastic about using the real audio from uh, Jimmy V last episode. Well, I checked into some legal points with our lawyer, and you know, apparently, even if you're not making money from it, it's still illegal to um, uh, download those videos and use them for personal use. So until... You know, until we're really big time and getting connections with the producers and industry, we'll, we'll just have to stick with getting uh, unpaid actors to do the speech exits. So, <laughs> with that, All Claire, right. can you lead us into the speech? Sure, here we go. When you're famous, you kind of run into human nature in a raw kind of way. It stirs up envy, fame does. People you run into feel that, well... Who is she? Who does she think she is, this Marilyn Monroe? They feel fame gives them some kind of privilege to walk up to you and say anything to you. You know, any kind of nature, and it won't hurt your feelings. Like it's happening to your clothing. One time, here I am looking for a home to buy, and I stopped at this place. A man came out and was very pleasant and cheerful and said, Oh, just a moment, I want my wife to meet you. Well, she came out and said, Will you please get off the premises? Mike, it was a pretty long excerpt. It's a pretty long speech, article, interview. What, what most compelled you about this paragraph? <clears throat> well, it reminded me reminded me of sort of like the the drama or like the texture of communication within the context of like social media today, right? Where people will as I understand it, since I don't have social media, except Catholic Dimash, um, people will communicate in a way that they would not actually in person, right? Um, and 
obviously in this time period, you know, there was no social media to do that. So it sort of just made me think like, okay, is there some sort of like connection there between those two, between those two things? Um, can you, I don't know, can you guys imagine like running into some famous celebrity and obviously in this case, like it's clearly like a negative interaction between Marilyn Monroe and this guy's wife. Um, so obviously there was something about Marilyn Monroe that was just unsettling to his wife, which actually reminds me of something I watched in like sort of an extended video of this interview. And I read elsewhere that like women in the United States until after she died, like, very much disliked Marilyn Monroe. In fact, I remember, like, one quote from this video from a woman being in her average woman down the street. She said something like, you know, a million American women have the exact same thing Marilyn Monroe has, but we're not going around flaunting it about. I mean, one could probably argue that. But it, it gets a sense of, like, just the sort of, like, energy, right. the sort yeah. of feeling that these women are having. Um, so to connect like my ideas, I don't know, maybe could you imagine if there were some celebrity or famous figure who stood very like counter to what you believed, maybe you'd be more inclined to be more antagonistic towards them, like require more self-control or something. I don't know. Have any of you ever actually met a famous person? Like had a conversation with a celebrity? negative no actually Mm-mm. no conversation i met uh, the lead guitarist for zz top at walmart <laughs> wow. yeah. what is the lead guitarist doing shopping at walmart i feel like he'd shop at like only whole foods no well it was a walmart in east peoria as well which is uh, even better but if you ever been to that walmart you know, what I, you know what I mean with his name on it there but now. uh yeah, I don't know. He uh, is just in the pharmacy getting some sort of, I'm sure, very legal getting substance. And, I don't know. But um, you didn't ask for Claire to meet him, and then Claire wasn't like, hey, I hate you. <laughs> no, no, that didn't, that didn't happen. <laughs> Surprisingly. No, um, yeah, that's, no, I, I've never really had a conversation with a celebrity. Landon, what struck you about that excerpt? Uh, I think the negative, um, just how much the negative uh, relationship with this individual <coughs> weighed on her. And, yeah, it did get me thinking of what is it that... Um, what is it that draws out? You're always running into people's unconsciousness. This was the next line that I don't think we read. Um, which is kind of a deep comment. I'm not sure I exactly know what it means. Um, <clears throat> it reminded me of a thought, though. I've often heard, like, celebrities feel like this burden of fame. They're like, you know, I, I do my job. I show up. I run. I'm on this television show. Why do people bug me? Why do they, why do I have paparazzi? Like, why are they following me around? Um, I'm just, this is my job. Like, you know, you can enjoy my entertainment, but you don't have to, you know, intrude into my life. Well, I think the the nature of our relationship with screens and with 
our favorite actors and TV shows. It's like we are people spend a lot of time with them and you know in the way that they might otherwise spend time with like um you know someone they play cards with at night or the guy fixing you know someone who does a job for them fixing their refrigerator or whatnot like if you're gonna banter about with someone who's in your house for an hour like you get to know them you have um you intrude on the aspects of their life because you are around them and so when you are confronted with someone who you've spent hours and hours and hours of your life with, even though they don't know you, you are going to project a familiarity, um, a like or a hate or a something that's not at the same level that they can give back to you. Um, and that's, that is the burden of their fame for sure, but I don't think it's, it might not be unwarranted. Um, it's like the cost of um, you being way more known to way more people than they are to you. This isn't a particularly deep thought, but it's sort of fun and relevant and drives home your point. I remember when I was like in third grade or fourth grade, um, I like, I wrote a letter to Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) All the kids were doing it back then. And, uh, cause my friend Anthony had done it. And he got, like, this package of, like, sort of cool stuff, you know, like, $4 worth of, like, cheap posters and stuff like that. And anyway, so I wrote this letter, and I remember wanting to address it as Dear Michael, because, I mean, that's who, come on, he was Michael Jordan. And my mom, to her credit, was trying to impart, like, this important lesson to me. He's like, no, Michael, you write it as Dear Mr. Jordan. And I was like, what? No, that's not how he is. <laughs> that's not how me and him ball on the court. Um, I think I, I did ultimately change it how she wanted it, Mr. Jordan. Um, not that he would have ever read it, but, you know, to drive drive home the appropriate point. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, nothing deep there, but it is interesting how it c- confirm, confirms your point there. Didn't he refer to that letter in the Last Dance documentary? I thought he did. <laughs> <laughs> Back when my buddy Mike wrote to me. So it, it strikes me that Marilyn would have been a particular, would have had like a particular, um, would, would elicit a particular animosity potentially from women, right? Because it's not just the burden of fame when it comes to her. It's my husband has yeah. seen all of you and is potentially comparing me to you. And even if he's not, I, as the woman, am. And so I'm sure that a woman meeting her feels an immediate sense of competition, right? And so will you please get off the premises? Isn't just will you please get off the physical premises, I think. It's also like get away from my husband, get out of my living room, get off of my television set, don't show up in my magazines. Yeah. I was going to say, just, like, tagging along with that, like, it does strike me a little bit of Marilyn Monroe's, like, obviously that wasn't a pleasant experience for her, what happened there, but the fact that it was an unpleasant experience and it caught her off guard, but she summed it up, strictly speaking, as, like, that had to be an envious response, kind of makes me wonder a little bit if she didn't fully understand her impact in all of, like, all that entailed. Mm -hmm alluding to in this sense like what Amory was just saying like this competition this like oh gosh like 
I don't like what this is doing. Um, or that's not what I'm trying to say, but like, I don't like the way maybe my husband feels about you. If that, you know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? I would imagine the nature of Marilyn Monroe's career made it very difficult for her to have any female relationships, at least any healthy mm. female relationships. Quick age check too. How old is she right here, Mike? Uh, I think she was 36 when she died. Yeah. So, and this is several months before her passing. Uh, well, really just a few weeks. A few so weeks. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, especially like, what, in 1962, like how would you personally feel the impact of your fame? Like fame wasn't probably as big of a thing as it is now to be like <clears throat> super famous. Like you can probably get to age 36 and not fully understand how intimately so many people know you. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe in a sense though, you get, you could actually know better because you know, and the most like explicit example she gives to that point is like, well, I'm famous, and sometimes I'll go to the mall, and kids will start like following me around like dogs. Like, okay, well, that's interesting. And that that's like that is the only way you could have been famous in the 1960s or anything before the 2000s was by actually being famous, right? Versus now it's like, there are kids in schools, I think, just conjecturing, who experience a certain kind of fame just because of some nonsense of their like social media status. So it's, I'm, I venture to guess that it is, it's some kind of fame that like, can like set off certain like hormones of their brain so that you you do actually sort of feel something like the fame that um, an actual famous person might have. So mm -hmm. I don't know necessarily where I was going with that, but it was just sort of. <laughs> well, it made me, and I mean, Landon, you kind of mentioned like the just timing chronologically of, of where she's at and Mike's comment about the fame and how it's changed over time. Like this is, just thinking about, like, when did mass media become a thing in the United States? Like, maybe the 20s? We had the capacity to, like, broadcast the same thing nationally. Like, I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but somewhere in that ballpark. Um, we certainly didn't have the capacity to do, like, movie-type things. And even then, it was, I would say, fairly a luxury until probably the 30s or 40s. Um, and then Marilyn Monroe comes along... And, I mean, most of her career was the 50s. We're, I mean, I think you guys used the term 60s, but she died in 62. Most of her work was in the 50s. So, like, Was TV in color at that point? Mike, was the movie you watched in color or black and white? It was black and white. And that yeah. came out in 1959, I believe. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but anyway, so, I mean, this is... She's really at the forefront of just mass media. Like, she might have been the first like truly famous, like w truly well-known, like woman of her type, right? Like, so obviously there's been uh, pornography and like other like types of um, objectification of women, but it's always been in like kind of shady street corners or like different things like that. Um, I know most of her work wasn't like strictly speaking pornographic, although she did have a few like kind of voyeurs into that world. Um, 
but like for her to really deeply embrace like that um just like the sex appeal side of like being an actress um like really really groundbreaking like if you put this within the context of all of history and like just how mass media like this is the first person who like most women in the world most women in the united states I, at least would have like Gay marie mentioned like would have compared themselves to or like felt this sense of competition with um so just to put a fine historical point on that uh to make use of my time i spent reading um she remember before her there was jane russell and rita hayworth i think um now those women were presented in a way that more like appealed to other women because they were popular during world war ii when all the men were away whereas obviously now when marilyn monroe was famous she was it was obviously post-war and men were back home so that, that was sort of like the the dynamism that was going on there but i find it very strange that on the one hand she's this cultural icon but then within the the speech that you sent us mike there's this massive pay gap between her and jane russell in this movie that they were in together gentlemen prefer blondes so in the back of my mind this whole time it's like she's saying these things right but really what i'm hearing knowing as like what happened next right that she killed herself very shortly after I don't know how seriously to take most of what she's saying because I know that she must have been hurting so, so, so badly given what was about to happen that I'm also not sure like how much stock to put in any of what she's saying. Like how, how clearly is she thinking? Um, it strikes me as pretty naive for her to not know <laughs> or not expect nasty interactions with women, right? Like given the content of her work, um, well, can you explain that a little more? What do you mean, like, not take stock or not take it seriously? Right. She's having this conversation, right? As if, like, you and I are sitting across from each other having coffee, right? right. But then clearly her inner world is in such complete turmoil. She is in the depths of despair such that she takes her life such a short time later. Like, right. you are in a mental world of incredible pain. So I don't know how much are you able to just have these basic, ordinary, everyday conversations and to really put your mind into those conversations when you are clearly hurting so much emotionally. I see. Hmm. Interesting point. Because like having, having experienced anxiety, for instance, in the past, right? Like when you are feeling super, super anxious, you're, you're talking to people but you're not thinking that hard about what you're saying because all you hear is the noise in your own head, right? And so that's just a microcosm example of something that clearly blew up not long after. So the, so the question I'm asking myself is like, I mean, sure, I can sit here and try to analyze the, like what she meant and, and did she know exactly how powerful her impact was and all of these things, but how seriously ought I to take her knowing that she was really hurting at that time, you know? I think it's um, when you said something that I guess stuck out to me from the excerpt, which you kind of touched on a little bit, like when you said she seems kind of naive and not understanding how she's probably going to be received by other women. I feel like that's kind of what came across when I read the paragraph. Like, 
I think I had a similar take on like, I think it's to me like relatively clear why this man's wife wanted you away. But yet at the same time, she started it with like, uh, what did she say? It stirs up envy, fame does. And she like that kind of led into that story. So it was like, I don't know. I don't know if envy is the word I would describe for the wife saying, get the heck out of here. Um, Because it didn't seem so much as like, oh, I want to be you. Like, you're so awesome. So much as like, you are a bad thing. Get out of here. So, but so when you said like naive, it's like, and again, whether or not you, you know, how serious to take the words, but at least how it's presented is like, maybe it's almost like she wasn't aware of how that was being perceived. And I know we're probably going to touch on this later, but to maybe just kind of start the dabbling is kind of this. I felt like it's pretty obvious through the speech is kind of this like her okay with being a sex object and then also not wanting to be that. And like, I feel like that little, I don't know, duality or that little conflict comes through like multiple times in the speech. So it's like, I don't know. It just kind of struck me. I was thinking like, I wonder if she just didn't, she, she didn't seem happy with it because she couldn't really even decide if she was okay with it or not, but just how aware she was of the entire situation, I guess. Um, I don't know. That just stuck out to me a little bit. I feel like from that paragraph, but then through the whole speech, just this kind of, I don't know if turmoil is the right word, but um, yeah, just the battle between those two thoughts, I guess. So Ross, like what you were saying kind of made me think a little bit like, in like her history when you were saying that about how she wasn't fully aware um it does strike me a little bit like if you consider I guess like I was reading unfortunately she was like molested growing up and she was in foster homes and like kind of bounced around a lot just like what kind of impact that would have had on her and then like how did that shape her so that when she was growing up and it was like some photographer discovered her and was like, oh, you'd be a great model. It's like, does she have the tools to know how to like, uh, to deal with the fame, to deal with being like exceptionally beautiful. Um, and then also being offered these jobs that were below her, quite frankly, obviously, but like, she didn't know what to do with that, right? Like how to say no to it, perhaps. Who knows? You know, that just kind of struck me like how much of her past shaped those decisions she made that um, objectified her, you know? And when she talks about envy and like, it seems like kind of a misinterpretation, like kind of what we were saying, like, eh, is it really envy or is like this wife kind of justly upset about something? Um, I mean, it could even be just like that's her defense mechanism for like just calling it envy and trying to like embrace this, this thing that she is struggling with, you know? Um, so maybe not like a serious, um, comment, but still like perhaps reflective of, um, this kind of dissatisfaction with things and like, oh yeah, they're just envious of me when, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe deeper down, she does know there's something else, something else to it. Sure, because envy is somebody else's problem as opposed to something that you have any responsibility for. Yeah, so it, it seems like it's sort of, there is like this emergence of this like antagonism of like these two sort of strains of thought within the interview where she's simultaneously, simultaneously like 
relatively content with her life in terms of all the things that her life, like, in the most obvious sense was, like, fame and attractiveness and uh, professional success, which was in this way particularly unique for a woman at the time. Um, but then with, like, the other side of it, with, you know, objectification... You know, the thing with fame, as she described in this excerpt of, you know, this guy's wife not liking her for reasons we've already discussed. So with that, Nate, let's go ahead and transition to our second excerpt. This excerpt comes from later on in the interview. The interview is relatively short. It's only about five or six hundred words. Um, and to the extent it's been expressed, it is actually a really interesting interview. Marilyn Monroe, for those who don't know, she, you know, my impression of her going into this was that she was basically, just put it like really simp simplistically, like the first Pamela Anderson, and that sort of ages me because like that was the really physically attractive woman when I was growing up. I was going to say, I had to <laughs> Google her. I had no idea who that was. Whoa, <laughs> Mike, you're so old. I don't so know old. who the boys are talking about these days. <laughs> it's probably for the better, Claire. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not so sure that that's actually a fair assessment because Pamela Anderson generally, inarguably, I would say has no meaningful acting skills. Um, whereas Marilyn Monroe, she was in like some pretty, pretty critically successful films. Uh, I watched last night for research for this uh, Some Like It Hot, which sounds far more dark and uh, sexual than it actually was. Uh, <laughs> But that was ranked number 22 on the American Film Institute's top 100 films of all time. Wow. Um, and there are a few other films that got really high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, number two, it's sort of like set Marilyn Monroe a little bit apart from those types of female personas is... Um, she got average grades, apparently, growing up in school, but her writing was recognized as being particularly good. And that sort of shows through in this interview. Not that it, she wrote any of it, but just the way that she communicates herself in a little bit more of a nuanced way. Um, so, anyway, th those are some of the things that sort of come through in the interview. They're interesting as, as an aside. So, with that, let's sort of mosey on into the second in, uh, excerpt here. Claire, can you read that for us? I don't mind being burdened with being glamorous and sexual. What goes with it can be a burden though. I feel that beauty and femininity are ageless and can't be contrived and glamour, although the manufacturers won't like this, cannot be manufactured. Not real glamour. It's based on femininity. I think that sexuality is only attractive when it's natural and spontaneous. This is where a lot of them miss the boat. And then something I'd just like to spout off on we are all born sexual creatures, thank God, but it's a pity so many people despise and crush this natural gift. Art, real art, comes from it. Everything. Ross, anything stick out you here? I've I've always considered you more sexual than glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> I think that came through in your introduction of me. I think that came through quite well. Um I think, and I don't know, I guess what what it makes me think of 
And I don't know, I might be looking too far into this. So if I go off and it seems too kind of like much like a tangent, feel free to stop me. But when she talks about, what does she say? Like kind of being the difference between like, I don't know, like she talks about, uh, what does she say? I'm trying to read it. Like talking about being a sexual creature, but then she talks about glamour. Like part of me was like, I think it's, I'm going to try to articulate myself well, but to kind of put a pro on what she's saying she seems to understand that like her body is part of her so like it's like i'm always a little bit i don't like separating like oh this is what i think and how i act and this is what i look like so like she seems to understand that that's part of who she is and she's very okay with that so like i don't think that that's necessarily a a problem um but then so that's, I think, kind of how I first, what at my first thought, but then I guess towards the end, just my kind of first thought off my top of my head, when she talks about, you know, we're born sexual creatures, art, real art comes from it, everything. I guess to me, like that word naive kind of jumps back in because I think of like today when you see a lot of movies and they'll put a sex scene in there or something like that. And they're like, oh, it adds to the story, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay we're not stupid. Like we all know why you put that beautiful woman in a sex scene was to make men watch the movie. Like we get it, It, but they try to, you know, you'll hear people talk about, Oh, it's, it was artfully done or something like that. And it's like, Nope, that's not why you put the scene there. Um, and so when she kind of gets to the end there, I guess my mind kind of went to that idea and just kind of that word naive kind of popped back into my head a little bit. I don't have this exact quote, but I think, um, I think George Orwell said that there are two things he would never try to depict in a movie because he he knew that they would just cheapen it immediately and it couldn't be captured in film. And he said those two things were sex and prayer, um, which I thought, yeah, was just a really interesting quote. And, yeah, just what you mentioned, Ross, like, yeah, I think that, that actually is uh, very appropriate. So before we get too deep, because maybe it might not be obvious to everyone listening, you know, she distinguishes glamour and uh, sexual as an adjective. So as synonyms, sort of how I read that, a little bit more like, I don't know, modern day language or language that might sound more familiar. Um, I like, I read glamorous and I would see more synonyms like gorgeous, beautiful, and then sexual is, you know, sort of there. Sexual, hot, smoking, whatever, stuff like that. So just just to clarify that. I'm glad you brought up those synonyms because when I read the speech, what kind of jumped into my head was the exact same thing. And I guess, and maybe she sees it, maybe she doesn't, but I actually recalled a conversation I had with someone in college. Now, just for the listeners to know, this isn't how I still talk and speak. So I'm kind of admitting some falsehood here to my uh, early college immaturity. But I remember somehow trying to classify someone as hot and someone as beautiful. And like I was very young and immature, blah, blah, blah. But I could like I was talking about two different things. And so when I think of to kind of touch on my earlier point, like if I were to tell my wife, you're beautiful. Yeah, like I mean, physically, she's incredibly like I think she's attractive. But I'm talking about, I think, more than that. I'm also, you know, you're beautiful, you're attractive, you know, like I'm attracted to you as a person, just like our conversations. Like there's a lot more, 
like it doesn't exclude what she looks like but it includes a lot more than that where if like and again 18 or 19 year old ross when i said someone was hot like you're strictly looking at what they look like if that makes sense i mean i guess that's the um definition of objectification but um so that that kind of stuck out with me that little she even seemed to kind of talk about glamour and sexual like that same thought that mike just said like hot and beautiful that i remember thinking like oh i've had that thought before um just yeah so anyway i'm glad mike you also had the same synonyms that i did um claire and marie was this distinction ever explained to you in any meaningful way when you're growing up by anyone and did like you absorb it were you receptive to it well, I'll just say sort of what I'm kind of thinking now, actually. Uh, it strikes me that your definition of beauty, Ross, is really an integration, kind of like a sum of sum of all the parts sort of thing, like a their whole person, right? Like your perception of their beauty has to do with all of them. So all of your wife's thoughts and her, um, you know, accomplishments, certainly, and physical beauty, but it's all sort of tied together. Whereas this, the adjective sexual to me, like, refers very, very much so to, like, uh, physical appearance, right? Visually. Um, and then I think of that as being definitely different from, or at least not the same as glamour because glamour, I was thinking about like, what I, what do I mean? Like when I say someone's glamorous or I think someone's glamorous, um, and I was talking to Claire about this before, but like, I think of words like shimmery and sparkly, but not, um, <laughs> not like a disco ball or sparkly, but, but also like somebody who's set apart, like, if I think someone's glamorous, there is a quality, um, a perception that I have that they are unattainable in some way. Like, they are different from me. They are different from the average. Um, and I think of glamour also sort of like like how beauty is more than just your physical appearance. I think of glamour as, as almost being more like a presence. So something in your presence is communicating this, this sense of glamour, at least in my, you know, in my experience. Whereas, like, to me, if you're looking at somebody and you'd say, like, your immediate label would be like, oh, well, she's hot. To me, there's not a whole lot more thought that usually goes into it than, like, see, judge, judgment is hot. But glamour is more like you're taking something in of their whole presence of more of who they are is is wrapped up in, in the term glamour, I would say. And also, I would say beauty, but beauty being potentially more approachable. Whereas I really do think glamour has something to do with like, uh, I don't even know if it's quite fame, but yeah, something that's set apart. It's not part of the, like the run of the mill. Claire, what, what do you think? When I was thinking about like this particular paragraph, I was like thinking, okay, who is glamorous? Cause I was talking a little bit with Anne-Marie about it and I was talking about Matt ahead of time, like, okay, glamorous, like what, is, what do I think of? Um, and I thought, okay, if Marilyn Monroe was considered glamorous and then like, um, she committed like suicide, right? A few weeks later from this like, uh, interview, I was just like starting to wonder like, is glamorous a neutral? Is it, um, like inherently good, inherently bad? Or is it just like a neutral? Cause it's like Marilyn Monroe was tied to glamour. But then she ended up, like, killing herself, and you're just like, gosh, like, <laughs> what the heck? Um, but then I also thought of someone like Grace Kelly. You know, she didn't commit suicide or anything. Um, 
but like I think all of us would argue like wow that was also a very glamorous woman and they seemed very different um yeah I do sorry I haven't like fleshed that thought out a whole lot more than that but I was just kind of like comparing like the two versions of like glamorous in my head a little bit well uh just to like work off of that a little bit I mean I I think I understand where you're going I think um you can correct me if I'm wrong but you know there's certainly it seems like qualities there of Marilyn Monroe that were glamorous or beautiful and I know you Amory you were sort of making even a distinction between glamorous and beautiful um but it, it you know just in terms of like Marilyn Monroe at the very least um her wanting to be more than just her body um like i mean that that's certainly an attribute which sort of transcends herself um but two like the other point i don't i don't i wouldn't want to define someone simply by one action that they took you know in this case taking her life um that would potentially like oh well she's not she's not glamorous because she didn't encompass like the full spectrum of the of the glamorous or beautiful ideal if that makes sense and before before you like the, another sort of like thing that reminds me of that um <laughs> i remember when uh the house of stillwater was on the david foster wallace kick <laughs> and I remember <laughs> all, all I the. Remember we've all lived at Stillwater. Us. It was a, a joyous place in Champaign, Illinois. Urbana. We've all lived there, Urbana. really, though, right? We've all <laughs> lived there. An ancient castle where dreams come true. Castle on Stillwater. I'm like, is that a television show? I don't watch. I don't even know what dreams. <laughs> we've we've submitted the television show plans to Netflix and a couple others. They. <laughs> haven't taken it yet i was ready yeah. to buy it yeah i was like that must be on hulu you know <laughs> right. I don't, i'm not over it's that, free but... it's free to our gold status right now right oh. now it's just a place you can book on airbnb uh <laughs> it's it's open after june just search it um, anyway, the, the point that was like semi-relevant that I was going to make is I remember David Foster Wallace's spouse saying, commenting, it was like the most melancholic, melancholic, stoic sentence in the world, commenting on Mr. Wallace taking his life. And she said something like, you know, suicide isn't always something you just build up to. Sometimes it just happens. And... Again, that connection to Marilyn Monroe is loose, and there's no major point on there, only just because it's an interesting, like, loose connection. <laughs> I did re-watch the end of the tour recently that we watched. I think I watched it once COVID. a year. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted you guys to remember, because I had forgotten about it, the scene where, um, what's the name of the Jesse nerd Eisenberg. after? Yeah. Remember where they wake up before their trip and uh, uh, the guy who plays Wallace, he says something like, hey, you want coffee? And Eisenberg says, 
I don't need coffee yeah, to yeah, wake yeah. or I don't yeah. need caffeine to wake up. <laughs> what a yeah. prick. <laughs> He's a writer. They're all pricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Ooh, ooh. I know. You should watch the film, Andrew. The it's end great, of the, the tour. end of the yeah. tour. Um, Do you know David Foster Wallace? No, of him? Not a chance. Zero. Oh! I know. This, this is, is water. water? It might have to be our speeches before death. Yeah, 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 that'd be fantastic. All right, well, right over my head. Google him, kind of, yeah. So, um, I left this off. Th those were great, great, Amory, fantastic. But I th it would still be interesting. To, so, do you remember, yeah, being communicated anyway? The difference between beauty and hotness growing up. Um. I would say I was more more familiar with, like, messaging about modesty. I don't know if I, like, modesty versus hotness. I don't know if I heard a lot about beauty, which I think is probably an interesting commentary um, there, that it wasn't yeah. so much an emphasis on, on beauty. Um, I think the way that it was communicated to me was hotness really, if, if, the way that you're dressing, for instance, right? Because that was always kind of the usual first context people think of when they think of modesty. Um, if you are dressing in such a way that all people are able to see at first is your body, then it makes it a lot harder for them to be aware of all of the other aspects of your person, uh, right? Which makes it harder for them to form an opinion of you that's integrated and takes like takes into account all these different areas of your life. And so um, Marilyn Monroe strikes me actually as like, a really interesting example of somebody whose body was screaming so loudly certain things in the movies, right? Um, but like, did people actually know her? <laughs> did people actually know her? And e even in this, yeah, I mean, just as a quick retort, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, as a quick retort, just to feel like point, like, well, certainly some people knew her, but you know, could more people have known her in this more complex way if she had? Yeah, lived a more modest life, more judicious life. Um, but I just think even like even she like we've we've mentioned so like multiple times in this conversation this concept of conflict within her and like when I was reading things outside of this interview about her, you know, there were problems with drugs, there were problems with alcohol, like there were accusations that she never showed up to the set on time. But she references within the speech that basically she showed up to the set kind of precisely when she meant to sort of a thing. Um, and so, it, yeah, to me, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. I, I don't know how much perception she had, or was there a naivete there about how she was coming off to people? Like, was this in her mind? Like what I have to offer is my physical appearance. And so that's what I'm going to offer. And that's where the money is going to come in from. So that is going to be it for me. Did she yearn for something more? And she was told by the studio executives, like, eh, this is all we want for our films. I don't know. So I would venture to say, you know, it takes a certain. I'm going to coin a term here. We, we coin a term every episode, uh, Amory, that we put on different merchandise and stuff like that. Here's here's my here's mine for this episode. Everyone needs a personal profit. So what I mean by that is, you know, the personal profit, if you will, of our generation, it would be like John Paul II in terms of 
being able to meld together a certain like well theology of the body in the most like proper sense of the word whereas like marilyn monroe and the way that she speaks like certainly had a certain like attentiveness towards like both of these different dimensions of herself like the physicality and that more transcendental part of herself that that was beautiful in certain ways and you know it was it was maybe just a matter of having that john paul ii either in an like an explicit way as a broader figure but or just personal way to sort of to sort of integrate those two those two dynamics but i think something that kind of struck me i guess not just reading in the speech but then kind of as we've talked about marilyn monroe too some is i think somebody said and i didn't do enough research i guess about her life but like she was in foster homes is that right as a child yeah. So I think about kind of like Mike, your question to Anne Marie was like, how was that communicated to you? Right. So that's in my head. I'm thinking when she was younger and had, I'm assuming her parents are talking to her or maybe older siblings, but people that she knows, she trusts, they can kind of communicate that to her. Um, so, I mean, you know, somebody that grew up, maybe, and maybe she did, I guess, I don't know what sort of homes she was in, but I would think it would be harder in that sort of unstable, maybe formative years to hear that message clearly, if that makes sense. So it seems like without that kind of foundational view, it would be easier to be okay with being the sex symbol, I guess, if that makes sense. But then at the same time, to like to her credit, I guess a little bit, I mean, I guess my other two comments I've said seem kind of naive, but at the same time, like she references numerous times how she doesn't want to be that. So I would have to think that it's at least on her mind that that's what she is to people. Um, right. Uh, this, uh, just a couple highlighted things. That's the trouble. A sex symbol becomes a thing. I just hate to be a thing or um, back from our first excerpt. She says, what is, uh, when she's talking about the person's wife, um, they'll say any, of any kind of nature and it won't hurt your feelings like it's happening to your clothing so she seemed to and in some ways i think come off as somewhat naive in that but like in other ways it's like she did seem to understand that she was being objectified and she didn't like it clearly um and i don't know well enough the story to say if that did or did not contribute to her you know decision to take her own life but um i don't know that just kind of maybe i'm trying to connect too many dots without knowing her too well so, sort of a point I wanted to explore a little bit that's pretty close to this point. Like, to what extent does the secular world worry about objectification of women? And just to put a couple of other fine points on that, as you sort of prepare your thoughts, it's like there's a certain, like, dialogue, it seems today, where... Like, even that idea, like, the objectification of women, sort of, like, the things that go with that, can almost seem like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, sort of, like, patriarchal, because a lot of what goes with that is, of course, like, well, if, if we want to maybe do something to help reduce the objectification of women, then we 
have to make sure that women dress, you know, more modestly, right? Well, that, that sort of like has a certain like patriarchal flavor, like rightly or wrongly, right? Um, which of course is like anathema to the secular world. So, so where, where does like that leave the secular world then with like dealing with this issue? Does it say, oh, it's not actually an issue. It's all just made up. Or, oh, well, actually, we're going to deal with it, but we're going to deal with it in some other way of X, Y, and Z. What do you guys think? Say the question again. How does the secular world deal with the problem of the objectification of women, the sexualization of women? This actually does tie into sort of one of my other prompts. Um, maybe I'll just reread it just to sort of have a different sort of dimension to the same kind of question. Um, um, Is that question short enough, Anne-Marie? So you're, when you say, how does the secular world deal with the objectification of women? Are you saying, does the secular world recognize that women are objectified? Does the secular world want women to be objectified? Or does the secular world have a solution? All of I think what is, I think what all, of it. I think all uh, of it. You can you can sort of explore it anyway. Or is. could you sub secular world in for like how does Hollywood deal with it? Um, I I can't find it quick enough here, but I I thought I remember writing like how how does the woke world deal with the objectification of women? Mercy, I have like a million thoughts on this and I feel like none of them are in my brain right now. No, that's what I'm saying. I feel like all of them are just sort of like, uh... Because I, I think um, you could sub in like, you could say secular or you could say Hollywood or you could say woke. And like... Sure, yeah. It all kind of means the same thing. Well, I mean, it, it strikes me that we don't have any context these days or any sense of like what it is that actually makes a person valuable or worthwhile or worthy of imitation. Or, or even worthy of being paid attention to at all, right? And so if if you look at it through a, a woke lens, you would say, well, your value as a person comes from your labels, whatever labels or groups you can attach yeah. yourself to or umbrellas you can put yourself under, right? That's where your value as a human person comes from. And then you could push that out too and say like, you know, do you fall into the class of the oppressor, or the class of the oppressed, right? But the Christian worldview and the one that I think most um, values women, just like it most values men, like values men and women both, that has that has space to value both men and women without needing to put one or the other down, says that our value comes because we are children of, of a good and, and gracious father, right? And so I think woke culture says, well, in order for somebody to be lifted up, somebody else has to be pushed down. And I don't agree with that assessment, but I think that that is absolutely the lens through which um, we, we view the objectification of women. Like if somebody's going to be, you know, somebody has to be the victim here. Who, who's the victim going to be? Um, but I also think that in that lens as well, whomever is most powerful, um, that's who we would consider to be right. Like the winner who's going to come out on top. And we can, we can see that like through, well, actually, you know what? Let me let me think for a second. Why don't one of you guys say something? I have I have thoughts, but they're not going to come out clearly right now. So, why don't one of you guys go? Yeah, I remember like asking how the secular world deals deals with the objectification of women. <clears throat> I remember a talk. I was it might have actually been a TED talk. 
but it was by Sam Harris. I don't know. Um, Sam Harris is a pretty prominent atheist. Um, and I've listened to some of his stuff. And, Probably like atheist number one I mean, at this point. I think he's part of the four horsemen, but I know at least one or two of them have passed away since then. Hitchens so anyway, but a pretty... Hitchens and Hutchins. Hitchens and Dawkins, Dawkins. Dawkins. and Hutchins. and Hitchens and yeah, Harris, yeah, and I forget yeah. the fourth. But anyway, he's a very well-known atheist, and he was trying to argue why you can't don't have to believe in God to have like an objective morality. And I guess I don't want to get too much into his talk, but um, something that he stuck out with that, again, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but something he stuck that I think stuck out to me that's like, yeah, I mean, I do agree with that clearly. And I wish that I'm glad that people are now hearing this from not just, you know, Christian minds was he talked about the objectification of women and he kind of to kind of prep the audience, I guess he kind of compared it, you know, I, I don't remember which. I think he was discussing some Middle Eastern country or something and how women have to cover themselves and how the, you know, the Western world would view that as very repressive and blah, 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 and clearly doesn't value the woman for herself. Okay. And obviously the audience being a Western kind of hip Ted talk listening audience was very all about that. And then he made the comment though. And if you walk by a like mag, I forget what it's called. Newsstand magazine rack on the streets of New York city. All I see is pretty much naked women. And he said something to the effect of like, don't tell me that we honor and respect women if that's how we're going to present them. And so, again, he kind of gave this in the context of uh, why you can believe in an objective morality. Um, But I remember thinking like um, at least it's not somebody outside of a kind of, you know, the what can be labeled as conservative Christian circles is recognizing that this is a this is a problem. Um, But at the same time. Like, I don't think, I think to kind of tie into the question of like, how does the secular world deal with it? Like, I remember I, I'd have to listen to the talk again, honestly, but like, I didn't feel like it was an adequate, there was an adequate reasoning to get to that. It's like, he innately knew that that was the answer. Like, this is something is wrong here, but with his worldview, I didn't feel like he had an adequate way to get there. Does that makes sense. Like he was trying to reason himself to what he knew was right, but he and and again he would probably argue he did get there, and some people would agree. But um, anyway, I just thought of that as like a, that popped into my head when Mike you asked the question. Well, I think that sort of like hmm, the elephant in the room, if that's the right word, is women, right, rightly so to some extent. Like, <laughs> and you can sort of work off this, Amory. Like, women carry such a tremendous burden of humanity from devoting nine months times however many children you have and miscarry of your life to nourishing a young child, whereas the man spends, as Jim Gaffigan so aptly states, like three (laughs) seconds of that process. Um, plus, you know, obviously the woman often, uh, is in the home more so than the male. It's like the, the secular modern world is obsessed with fairness to, to like some legitimate extent. Like, yeah, fairness as much as you can should certainly be a pursuit of society. But like with the objectification of women, when you're dealing with like what Sam Harris says, you're dealing with how women dress. It's like Delph in the room is, well, what's the corollary to that? 
well, okay, fine, we'll dress a certain way, but, well, what are men going to do in return? And it's like, I don't know. Maybe there is an answer. I, Anne-Marie can feed in. You guys can certainly feed in. What's the corollary to if largely if if women have a certain role in addressing the objectification of women in terms of dressing a certain way what is the corollary of men i do have some thoughts on that but you guys can i gosh i feel like i spend so much time thinking about all of these things and reading about all these things and then it comes right down to it and i i really guess i would just say like what I think men can and should do is is what I've seen my husband done, right? Like do and what attracts me so much to him um, is that he just asks for all of my person and he enters into every aspect of my life, right? And so I know he thinks I'm physical beautiful. He asked me at least once a day to marry him and I appreciate that. I would like him to ask me that every single day for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's um, so cute. It is. Nice. It's really like yeah. me and Landon. Yeah, me and Landon are like. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like <laughs> writing down notes here. I Shoot, I need to. Could you yeah. share some more tips? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's one thing that he does that I really love is that he he essentially chooses me again every day and lets me know that. Um, but uh, he he's really legitimately interested in my thought life and emotional sphere as well. And I think that's something that I didn't expect within marriage, but mm. I've found like to be so life-giving is just this, this entrance into the things that I actually think and feel and not just like, Amory's being emotional again, but like, Oh, actually why, why is it that you think that way? And really like being willing to dig in deep with me and to, um, yeah, to, to at least be there, even if he doesn't understand all of the time, like the intensity of the emotions that I'm feeling, but that he's not dismissing them, right? Mm -hmm. That he's not dismissing them as, oh, that's just her being fill in the blank, her being hormonal, or that's just her being a woman. Blah. But like, no, the, the, the exact opposite of objectification in my mind is sort of the wraparound view that says, I see you as a person and I see every aspect of it and I affirm it and I choose it. So I guess I'm more able to answer the question of like, what is, what do I think the opposite of objectification looks like? And I think it's to take into account and to appreciate every aspect of what women bring to the table um, and to refuse to reduce what they bring to the table to their physical bodies. Uh, and that's really so much, I think, the, the beauty of, or whatever, the value of women dressing a certain way. Okay, fine. Like you can use that as a stepping stone, but what is it a stepping stone to stepping stone to it's a stepping stone yeah. to, I want to be seen as a whole person. I want to be seen as a whole person and I want to be treated, um, equally, not as the same, but as equal. So like, I'll give you an example too. So I do all this freelance writing. Right. And, and I was afraid at first that James was going to look at that and be like, that's taking her away from the family. Ah, you know, like this is competition and, and I hope she doesn't do as much of that. But instead he's like, nah, that's, that's what gives her life. Like I want her to do that. I want her to do more of that. And so we will make arrangements within the family or what have you that like there is space and time for her to do that. So that, that equality, that I think is a real um, antidote to objectification, but to see every aspect. Is that at all what you were asking even that, better yeah fantastic. thank you that's great stuff i've 
I've, I've got a thought, but I've been talking a lot. Any of you guys got a uh, I think I think maybe in contrast to what Anne Marie said, which is like, yeah, I, I think that's spot on and beautiful. Um, but in contrast to that, like what I mean, there, I think your original question, Mike, was something about like, what is the, the general world or general culture? Like, how do they try to solve that problem? Um, or do they believe it's a problem? Well, yeah. I, I think I mean, I think they do. I mean. There's, I, I w- at least in the last five years or so, like the term rape culture has come about. Um, there seems to be like very just like public and I, w- I would even say moral outrage at like certain um, certain things being overstepped like the Me Too movement and like just different things like that and, and bringing awareness and um, um, just trying to, to make that, uh, make it known that like that's that there are things that are unwanted um, that women experience right and that that's not right and that men need to do something different so I think that has been a thing and it has a problem or it, it is recognized as a problem but it seems like the solution I, I observe is like just the term consent right mm-hmm. so like yes. yep, if the woman consents then it's okay if they don't then you're a terrible person and like, I mean, you could even bring this out, even outside of like specifically sexual scenarios, just like, I know a few years ago, there was like the Super Bowl halftime show with like Shakira and JLo, right? So two like 40 something year old women, like mothers, kids, you know, wives, kids and all that. And like, yeah, I think by any step or any, any observer would, um, at least like be surprised or shocked and maybe not shocked, but like at least pay like attention to like, Oh wow. Like they're dancing very sexually. Right. And they're like, they're dressed very, you know, very sexually. Um, and people have all different responses, right? Like some people are like, Oh my gosh, like how, you know, like this is over the top. Um, I know I had like this really scummy, like 50 something year old patient, just this guy who was just like, Oh, wasn't that sweet. You know, just like, you know, as if he was, a, you know, like a 13-year-old in a locker room, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, any, I, I feel like, but then there are the people who are, like, very stout and defending, like, oh, that's their right. That's what they can do what they want. Like, they're just powerful, you know, sexy women and whatever. And so, I mean, there, there's, like, that term of consent, right? So that's that's kind of been the, the thing. But obviously that, one, like what's more meaningful consent or what Anne Marie described as like this beautiful, like appreciation of someone, you know, like what, like what is a more moving standard for like, or a solution, I should say, uh, for objectification. Um, and then you run into a lot of issues with consent because like you can consent to one thing one day and still feel terrible about it. Right. Um, well, and so. consent too, like there is a little bit of research about consent specifically. And the only reason I know this is because I was writing an article about how Planned Parenthood got uh, new sex ed standards passed for the state of Illinois for K through 12 now. It's like mandated sex ed programs. And so I, I was reading a little bit about consent for that. And even in the research they've done, it's still not adequate because the concept of cons- concept of consent is way too murky, right? Women are still the losers, even with the concept of consent being drilled into everybody's heads, because maybe you don't want to be slut shamed, 
Or maybe you're experiencing peer pressure. So you're saying yes, even though you really mean no. Or maybe you said yes to this one thing, but mm -hmm. you don't actually mean yes to this other thing, but no distinction is made. Like, how do you even... <laughs> How do you even live in a world in which consent is your yeah. only barometer? Like, it just doesn't work. And like I said, a couple of research studies that I looked at, it, it was inadequate. It was an inadequate measure of, well, if consent is obtained, then everybody's okay, right? No, that wasn't the case. So <clears throat> this thought, it, it's halfway playing the devil's advocate, but... Um... Ha more like like in an um hmm, i don't know what the word for it is i don't know i'll just walk into it so here's here's like the, there's multiple elephants in the room <laughs> here's another elephant in the room so <laughs> elephants like, are the best you know, elephants Emory, are the best <laughs> great depiction of the opposite of objectification um but like here's here's like the challenge. I'm actually I've talked recently about this with another friend, um, actually sort of about anti-racism because I I dare say there's a certain parallel between anti-racism and the academic sense of the word and um, and purity, chastity. Okay, so we'll set that aside for a moment. But the point is, it's like how do you it, it's much easier in like a mechanical sort of sense to, you know, when you're when you're like chatting amongst your Christian church members to say, okay, guys, what are we going to stand for? Okay, we're going to stand for women not having skirts more than 1.5 inches above their knee. Okay, <laughs> precept number one. Next thing. We have lemon squares every other Sunday. Okay, okay. You, know, you get the idea, right? Very measurable. Versus, okay, how do you articulate the corollary, the opposite of that, or the complement, the masculine corollaries that, okay, men, you're going to say, I, will you marry me every day? Well, okay. I mean, obviously that's more particular to your circumstance. So there, there's all like this complexity to it. Now, how I say, and I know how you guys would generally agree how you do it. Well, you got to have intentional friendships. You got to have guys who are going to challenge you. You got to be reading at least one or two books every year. that are sort of like cutting into you and lifting you up and that right balance of calling you a piece of crap. And also, you know, like I said, lifting you up. Well, some guys don't want to read. Some guys suck at making friends. Some guys just can't can't see all these layers of the world. Like, man, how how do you deal with well, that? Well, I don't know. I so mean, let me try to <laughs> re-summarize your analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, trying yeah. to think of some of the rules that are given to women publicly mm -hmm. in a Christian setting. No. Metaphorically, well, they're they're acknowledged. Publicly, okay, I think, and the then best. find the corollary or anecdotal, or what's the best similar rule to give to men? Yes, that ma that um is of the same magnitude towards women. Yeah. 
So here, here's actually which is a good question because I can't think of any. <laughs> good. Because here, there's quite frankly, there's like, someone in my life. There's multiple people in my life who have said things like, oh, "Well, you know, it's okay to look, you know, at a girl, right?" Like, and in in all general terms, like they're they're good people. I mean, th- no, they are good. They're they're probably better than me in most ways. But it's like how. But at the same time, I am one hundred percent confident in the sort of like pollution that that sort of like statement has to themselves and to society as a whole. Um, how do you? It's like how do you communicate that to someone like? Don't, no, don't say that. Don't believe that. Like, it is just as contaminating to yourself. I believe it is just as contaminating to yourself and society to say that as to, like, go and make a hobby of, like, tossing kittens in rivers. <laughs> you know, that sounds silly, but I mean, I think it sort of, like, gets gets the point across. One, one way I've heard it described in... I would say this is probably as succinct, and obviously there's depth here that is missing because it's so succinct, but someone once described it as like the first glance is free, the rest you have to pay for is kind of was what they said. So basically, if you notice a beautiful woman, Mm. right, like there's nothing wrong with noticing. If you take a second look or if you look longer than is um, like – immediately necessary you know what i mean like if you if you keep looking if you're whatever if you're ogling whatever anything beyond like the first immediate noticing like oh that's a really pretty girl like that's what you need to like that's what you're responsible for for in in some sense either like you you pay for it what was that i just said that's what you're responsible for I, i didn't hear you amory that's what you're responsible for. Yeah, that's what you're responsible for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's, so, that might be a succinct way of... I, I, think it makes I don't, don't want to, like, hog the platform, but it is an interesting point, and it, it might actually have relevance in, like, tying things together. I had said something like, like, anti-racism in the academic sense has, like, a certain corollary. So there's also something I've heard someone say... Um, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to go super into details, but just, just something derogatory about African-Americans that, you know, if you saw this particular person, you would never call or think of them as a racist, but it's similar in the sense that like you say this one thing, you don't think anything of it. You don't think that it's going to, it has the capacity to like, sort of like echo through your life, but like it does, <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how to express it, but, like, yeah, how do you, yeah, hmm, I don't know. I, I, I would just be rambling if I kept going with that, but maybe you can go with that in your own, own imagination. Just those sort of, like, small sort of, like, fissures within the structure of yourself that if you if you don't take seriously can sort of destabilize these certain elegant aspects of, of the world. Maybe since I think the question I posed might have a little bit longer answers than our typical round robin wrap up question, maybe going there now might not be a bad idea. 
And I think, I think we, this is a fluid way to kind of like go in. Yeah, it. we are at one hour and 19 minutes. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> Last question, sort of bring us in. Matt did tolerate that it would be a little bit longer than usual, which I'm all for. We're having a blast here. Um, how would you communicate the concept of beauty slash glamour as opposed to... Sex, sexualness, not exactly sexuality, sexualness, hotness um, to your daughter or even your son, which as we sort of discussed, there could be some, some different ways there. So how would you communicate the concept of beauty slash glamour slash gorgeousness, gorgeousness to your daughter or even your son? My uh, graduate school advisor always used to say, should be three parts to every talk. What, so what, now what? Well, this is the now what. <laughs> Just like I was, I always heard, you gotta tell him, you tell him what you're gonna say, you say it, and then you tell him what you told him. So it sounds, yeah, about the same. About nice. The same. So I'll go first, cause my, so I have a three-year-old daughter and like my, I feel like I get more than the usual 18 seconds for the closing question. But um, to kind of try to like put a personal point on it. So a lot of times like at night, I will help my kids fall asleep, reading books, lay down with them, blah, blah, blah. And once they fall asleep, like, I don't know, you just kind of look at them. I'll say a prayer for them, something like that. Just kind of spend some time with them right there, kind of reflectively, I guess. And I've noticed, I feel like with, and just to kind of talk about the difference, maybe like, I think what I, when I look at my sons or like think about them or pray about them, like what I say is different than what I say about my daughter. And I find myself very often, like when I look at my daughter, like the, what comes to my mind is I'll say, and I don't know, I'm not, I'm George Orwell here, so I can't film the prayer, but, um, I say something to the effect of like, I, I just pray that she just knows her her own worth and doesn't accept anything less. Um, and I think I kind of base that upon just what I know most women have to deal with in the world today and just how confusing I'm sure that is for, you know, it's one thing for, a you know, somebody that's confident and 20 or 30 years old and has, you know, like, but it, I feel like it's different. I'm sure it's different for, you know, a girl when she's 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, so anyway, I think, as far as like how to communicate to her the difference, I've heard it before, like the best thing a dad can do for their kids is to like treat their mother well. Um, mm. And I think part of it, I mean, I think part of it is just really hard probably to talk to a 13 year old girl, to be honest, I'm kind of dreading it. <laughs> but also at the same time, I mean, like, I don't know if I could articulate it super well, but just kind of the idea that, you know, if it's done well, like marriage and family and all that type of stuff, like my daughter will should, and I'm faulting myself. I mean, th right now I'm literally going through the, my faults, like, Oh gosh, I don't do a good enough job at this, but like she should see how I treat my wife. And then if, you know, she expects that of other people. So kind of like Anne Marie's comment about her, her husband, like treats her, like her kids should see that. And then that will, you know, without even having to tell them that will show them, their you know what to what the difference is i guess if that makes sense um 
So I don't know, I'm starting to ramble a little bit, but that's kind of my thought to your question. I'll just have a brief kind of add on because I like a lot of what you said, Ross. Um, and obviously, like, the mom is going to have a lot um, more particular things to say, like in terms of specifics to, to a daughter. But one thing um, I think is a, a good tradition or thing to do um, is to, like, take your daughter on a date, right? Like, have, like, a mm. specific, like, dad, daughter, like, yep, it's just me and my daughter or me and my, you know, $2, you know, whatever it is. And... Um, yeah, you basically just treat them really, really well. You don't have to call it, a, you know, a daddy-daughter date. You could call it whatever you want, you know. But um, but just to have, like, specific set-aside time and, like, you really pay attention to the, your daughter because, like, she should expect a guy to pay attention to her and to what she thinks and what she feels and um, and to provide things, right? So you, you're, you know, doing things like that. So I, I think that would be a just a brief add-on to what Ross said. I really like the idea of what you're saying about uh, that you're going to show people a lot more than you're going to tell them. Um, similar to the way that, like, you know, I always heard about the sex talk that your mom's going to give you, your dad's going to give you whenever you're growing up or whatever. But, like, what I've come to understand is that really it's like a series of talks that you have as your daughter ages or as your son ages. Like, this is how um, our human sexuality was meant to be expressed, and this is the context in which it was meant to be expressed in. Um, but that's not like a one and done deal. And in the same way, I don't think there's ever some particular thing necessarily that I'm going to tell my daughter about like, well, here's the definition of beauty and here's the definition of glamour. But what I hope I can communicate to her is that a really beautiful person is someone who lives for other people um, and makes a gift of themselves. Right. So to pull pull the theology of the body back into things. Right. Like somebody who truly lives out self gift. And so what I would communicate to my, you know, my daughters and my son, to all of our children, um, would be, I think, the sense that, like, we are meant to live our lives as gifts for other people. And the natural byproduct of that is going to be beauty. You will be an absolutely beautiful person if you choose to make a gift of yourself to other people every day to the best of your ability. Um, if my daughter wants to know about glamour, I have every interest in getting her into dance and sparkles and glitter and anything she could possibly want. Like Claire sent me this ridiculous picture of her wearing like a fur coat and these like giant oversized glasses. Like, yeah. Like if that's what she wants to, to go for fabulous, but she can choose to be glamorous or not. But even if she grows up, like I think she's going to be super into like hunting and archery and all these other like ferocious activities she can be an absolutely beautiful person in every single one of those activities because she is living authentically um, in her dignity as a daughter of God. So really, I mean, if she wants to pursue glamour, like great, and we can, we can flesh that out, but she's meant to be a beautiful person. Both, you know, men and women are meant to be beautiful people. So to make that distinction, hopefully. I'll, <clears throat> I mean, what I, Ross had to say, and Anne Marie, Matt, I'd say you. But <laughs> Ross. Yeah. What Ross and Anne Marie had to say, I definitely uh-huh. stole the show. Like father daughter dates. Oh gosh, that's that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and how you how you treat your spouse. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, what was I about to say? 
Are you crying right now? Oh, oh, oh. He said to cry every day. So Every day. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. I I don't think I've cried since the last episode. Maybe I tried to make myself cry once, but whatever. Um, no, I, I think, yeah, what you said is probably more important than what I'm about to say, but just have a little bit of diversity of answers. Um, I think that in terms of pop culture, I would expose my daughter... Um, to well, I mean, and son, of course, but just daughter, um, especially in the context of this answer of the kind of beautiful woman whom I want them to be. In terms, I, I think that they're so per, personal vulnerability here. I'm writing. Matt Matt knows this, but I'm writing. Well, actually, all three of you know this, except Anne. <laughs> I when I had COVID, I started working on a novel slash novella called Mel and Grady uh, about a girl and her dog, and I, I I guess I sort of tried to depict in the story what I think a beautiful woman is: someone who is capable, someone who is hungry for magic and mystery, um, and so. You know, and I look at some women in pop culture whom I just don't feel like, maybe they embody certain parts of that, but they don't embody as much of that as I like, you know, especially in music. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would dare say, <laughs> no, you may not listen to this particular female musician or something. Um, so... Again, I mean, I'd rely more heavily on the points that Ross and, and, uh, and Reed brought up. But, you know, just for some diversity in answers, like, yeah, there's certain certain women whom I would not want my daughter to be exposed to. There's nothing to gain there. Maybe certain songs. Um, but, I mean, it goes the other way with sons, too. Like, yeah, my son, I do not want you taking advice from one of the... I don't know. Guys, help me out here. Who's 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 a guy? Matt Schultz. Don't be taking advice from Matt Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> I need to come up with someone here yeah. for this episode. Otherwise, I mean, probably any men, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, most men. Yeah, I think when you when you look into Not secular myself, culture, yeah. you can probably switch it. Like where I think you know, we we feel we feel the most for our daughters and our sisters, but if you were trying to like point to or set examples for the masculine and the son, like I don't know, that might be harder right now. Um, pointing to popular culture, so in terms of role models, you mean? Right, yeah, or just how to what is the right path or role model, or how to tune out so much of the objectification that has been very uh, accessible to them which we really haven't focused on in this episode at all perhaps we covered a lot of ground guys I feel like we could keep going we could keep going for hours 
Can I ask you a question? Because <laughs> I don't want a podcast scared. Nice. I love it. Where did the title come from? Last Talk with the Lonely Girl. That was the name of it. That was the name so of it. So, like, the... they published it when after... He... I was going to say, was that titled prior to her death or before? Like, after? The That's a good question. Um, I mean, I have to suspect... I'm sure we could figure out relatively quick. I have to suspect that was the title given before she died. It was published only, like, a day and a half before she died. How would they say the last then? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was very say, like, of you. You must be a lineup. <laughs> uh, yeah, then that that had to have come after, or this guy was just Marilyn Monroe's personal prophet. Anyway, what do we have going on next episode? So, I actually haven't researched it yet. <laughs> you literally had I one know. job. Literally. I, I did. We, we and, pushed uh, off the awful slaughter by Ida B. Wells. <laughs> Maybe that's just your uh, fallback. I might keep it in the running, but we'll, we'll see what we got here. I've, I've, uh, I've had a few different ideas, so um, bantering in my head. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I need to figure it out. So it will be a mystery to all of those avid listeners eagerly awaiting our next episode. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Three weeks away. Hey, Marie, it's been a pleasure. It's been more than a pleasure. <laughs> Don't get too far ahead of yourself. <laughs> it was it was truly great having you on and Claire. Um, yeah. yeah. I, You're a natural yeah. podcaster. I'm going to be my own personal prophet here. I predict that <laughs> By we record our time, we record our next episode. We're going to increase our regular listeners by, I dare say, fifteen percent. Whoa! We're talking about a very, very small, which is like is that a fraction? Is that a fraction or is that a whole number? I mean, I know that Anne Marie's going to go tell all of her friends and family about this. We'll have at least all of the Catholic Match subscribers <laughs> talking about this podcast. Ruben, lead us to a better place. <laughs>